Chapter 15 of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 David Lloyd George. I was seated at dinner one night at 10 Downing Street beside a distinguished liberal. What a wonderful bust of Chamberlain that is in the hall, I said. Ah, he replied, you mean the bust of Pitt yes it is marvellously like chamberlain i wonder he went on musingly as though the question fitted in with his train of thought i wonder what will happen to chamberlain's successor i looked up chamberlain's successor you mean lloyd george of course there was a faint hint of reproof in the of course as though i had asked solemnly for an explanation of the obvious i looked down the table to where mr lloyd george himself sat his face lit with that smile so quick and sunny yet so obscure his light voice penetrating the hum of conversation with its note of mingled seriousness and banter his whole air at once so alert and self-poised full of a baffling fascination and disquiet yes here was the unknown factor of the future here the potentiality of politics and here too was its romance my mind turned to that little village between the mountains and the sea where the fatherless boy learned the rudiments of knowledge in the village school and where in leading his school fellows in a revolt against the catechism he gave the first hint of the metal that was in him i saw the kindly old uncle bootmaker and local preacher worrying out the declensions and the irregular verbs of strange tongues in order to pave the path of the boy to the law i saw that boy at twenty-one a qualified solicitor with his foot on the ladder fighting the battle of the village folk against the tyranny of the parson who refused the dying wish of a dissenter to be buried in his child's grave bury him where he wished to be said young lloyd george strong in the law but if the gate is locked break down the gate and the old man was buried in his child's grave and solemn judges in london pronounced a solemn verdict in support of the young hampton i saw him still little more than a lad leaping into the ring and challenging the squire of his village for the possession of the carnivan borough challenging him and beating him i saw him with nothing but his native wit and his high-soaring courage to help him flashing into the great world of politics risking his fortune and even his life in support of an unpopular cause escaping from birmingham town hall in the clothes of a policeman his name the symbol of fierce enthusiasms and fiercer hates and then i saw him transformed from the brilliant freelance into the serious statesman the head of a great department handling large problems of government with easy mastery moving great merchant princes like pawns on his chessboard winning golden opinions from all sides his name always on the lips of the world but no longer in hate rather in a wondering admiration mingled with doubt and now there he sat the man who has arrived the most piquant and most baffling figure in politics the man perchance with the key of the future what is the secret of it all in the first place audacity danton's great maxim is with him as with mr chamberlain the guiding principle of conduct he swoops down on opportunity like a hawk on its prey he does not pause to think he acts he has no fear 
The bigger the task, the better he likes it. The higher the stakes, the more heroic his play. He never fears to put his fate to the touch and will cheerfully risk his all on a throw. When the great moment came, he seized it with both hands. He had two motives, his love of the small nationality and his instinct for the great game. The one gave him passion, the other calculation. Here was the occasion. He was the man. His business was being ruined. No matter. His life and his home were threatened. Good. The greater the perils, the greater the victory. And we roared hurrah, and so the little revenge ran on right into the heart of the foe. Ran on and lashed itself to the great San Philippe of Birmingham, and came out of the battle smoke victorious, the one reputation made by the war, the one fortune born on the battlefield where so many were buried and he has not only the eye for the big occasion and the courage that rises to it he has the instinct for the big foe he is the hunter of great game don't waste your powder and shot on the small animals said disraeli and he hung on to the flank of peel go for the lion was randolph churchill's maxim and he gave gladstone no pause even to stamp at the heels of the great is fame it is to catch the limelight that streams upon the stage there are names that live in history simply because gladstone noticed them lord cross and lord cranbrook came to great estate merely because they beat him at the pole to have crossed swords with him was a career mr lloyd george's eye ranging over the government benches saw one figure worth fighting and he leapt at that figure with concentrated and governed passion it became a duel between him and mr chamberlain it was a duel between the broadsword and the rapier, between the Saxon mind, direct and crashing as the thunderbolt, and the Celtic mind, nimble and elusive as the lightning. He has, indeed, the swiftest mind in politics. It is a mind that carries no impedimenta. Hazlitt once wrote an essay on the ignorance of the learned, and declared that anyone who has passed through the regular gradations of a classical education and is not made a fool by it may consider himself as having had a very narrow escape certainly the man of learning unless he wears it lightly as macaulay said of milton and has assimilated it easily starts with a heavy handicap when he comes down to the realm of affairs he is under the dominion of authority and the awe of the past mr lloyd george has no such restraints he is like a runner ever stripped for the race the pistol may go off when it likes he is always away from the mark like an arrow and it is not speed alone when the hare is started he can twist and turn in full career for the hotter the chase the cooler he becomes he is the improviser of politics he spins his web as he goes along he thinks best on his feet you can see the bolts being forged in the furnace of his mind. They come hurtling out, molten and aflame. He electrifies his audience, but he suffers in print next morning, for the speech that thrills the ear by its impromptu brilliancy seldom bears the cold analysis of the eye. He is, in this respect, the antithesis of Mr. Churchill, though Mr. Churchill is like him in daring. I once had a pleasant after-dinner talk with them on the subject of their oratorical methods. I do not trust myself to the moment on a big occasion, said Mr. Churchill. I don't mind it in debate or in an ordinary platform speech, but a set speech I learn to the letter. 
Mark Twain said to me, you ought to know a speech as you know your prayers, and that's how I know mine. I've written a speech out six times with my own hand. Oh, I couldn't do that, said Mr. Lloyd George. I must wait for the crisis. Here are my notes for the Queen's Hall speech, and he took out of his pocket a slip of paper with half a dozen phrases scrawled in his curiously slanting hand. The result is a certain thinness which contrasts with the breadth and literary form of Mr. Churchill's handling of a subject, or with the massive march of Mr. Asquith's utterance. But it has qualities of sudden eloquence, imaginative flight, and quick wit that make it unique in the records of political oratory. Above all, it has a quite unexampled air of intimacy. His swiftly responsive nature brings him into extraordinarily close relations with his audience, so that he almost leaves the impression of a brilliant conversation in which all have been engaged. This responsiveness, while it gives his speech its rare quality of freshness and exhilaration, is the source of his occasional indiscretions. Lord Salisbury's blazing indiscretions were due to his detachment from men and his remoteness from his audience. They were the indiscretions of an Olympian. The indiscretions of Mr. Lloyd George come from his nearness to his hearers. He cannot resist the stimulus of the occasion. It works in him like wine. It floods him with the riot of high spirits and swift fancy, until he seems to be almost the voice of the collective emotion. And yet, with all this sensitiveness to the external impulse, he is at the bottom the most subtle, the most resolute, and the most willful force in politics. He has passion, but it is controlled. It does not burn with the deep spiritual fire of Gladstone. It flashes and sparkles. It is an instrument that is used, not an obsession of the soul. You feel that it can be put aside as adroitly as it is taken up. And so with his humor. It coruscates. It does not warm all the fibers of his utterance. It leaps out in light laughter. It is the humor of the quick mind rather than of the rich mind. We will have home rule for Ireland and for England and for Scotland and for Wales, he said, addressing some Welsh farmers. And for hell, interposed a deep, half-drunken voice. Quite right. I like to hear a man stand up for his own country. The soil of his mind is astonishingly fertile, but light. He is always improvising. You feel that the theme is of secondary importance to the treatment. You have an uneasy fear that this wonderful fluency of execution may presently reveal another motif. You listen. Your quickened ear seems to catch a hint of coming change. He keeps your mind on the stretch. He fascinates you, plays with you, holds you with the mesmerism of the unsolved riddle. You would give anything to know the thought behind that gay debonair raillery. He is indeed the least doctrinaire of men, as little doctrinaire as Mr. Chamberlain. No anchor of theory holds him, and he approaches life as if it were a new problem. It is a virgin country for him to fashion and shape. He is unconscious of the roads and fences of his forefathers. His maxims are his own, coined out of the metal quarried from his direct contact with life. He is not modern, he is momentary. There is no past only the living present. No teachers, only the living facts. This absolute reliance on self gives a certain sense of lack of atmosphere. There is no literature to soften the sharp lines. 
there are no cool grottos of the mind no green thought in a green shade this detachment from tradition and theory is the source of his power as it was the source of mr chamberlain's power he brings a fresh untrammelled mind to the contemplation of every problem it was said of leighton that he looked at life through the eyes of a dead greek mr lloyd george looks at life with the frank self-assertion of a child free from all formulas and prescriptions seeing the thing as it were in a flash of truth facing it without reverence because it is old and without fear because it is vast the thing is rotten he says and in a moment his mind has reconstructed it on lines that acknowledge no theory except the theory of practical usefulness thus he has swept away the old effete port of london and put in its place a system as original as it is ingenious and all the world asks why was this not done years ago like falstaff he is quick apprehensive forgetive but he does not like falstaff owe these qualities to canary but to the celtic spirit that races like a fever in his blood his apprehensiveness indeed is amazing he picks up a subject as he runs through the living voice never through books he does not learn he absorbs and by a sort of instantaneous chemistry his mind condenses the gases to the concrete his intellectual activity is bewildering it is as difficult to keep his name out of the paper as it was to keep king charles head out of mr dick's memorial he is always doing things and always big things his eye lights on an anachronism like the patent laws and straightway he sets it on fire he does not pore over books to discover the facts about docks he goes to antwerp to hamburg and sees when he brought in his merchant shipping bill he took a voyage to spain and learned about ships and his passion for action grows with what it feeds on he has yet his trumps to play with all this energy and daring the astonishing thing is that he has won the confidence of the most sensitive class the commercial class without losing the confidence of the working class like mr chamberlain he is essentially a middle-class statesman he is no socialist for as i have said he has no theories and socialism is all theory england he said to me once is based on commerce no party can live by an appeal to labor alone it must carry the commercial class as well as labor with it what can i do for commerce was his first question at the board of trade and he took up the merchant shipping bill what can i do for labor was his second question and he incorporated in it those valuable provisions for improving the life of the seamen wales looks on admiringly and a little sorrowfully at his giddy flight he has passed out of its narrow sphere the parnell of wales has become the chamberlain of england the vision of the young gladiator fighting the battle of the homeland has faded oh for a falconer's voice to charm the tassel gentle back again back to the resounding hills and the old battle cries that have grown far off and faint back to the pure idealism that stirred its pulse and its patriotism it is proud of its brilliant son proud of the first welsh-speaking minister to enter a british cabinet but it waits with a certain gathering gloom for its reward is it not thirteen years since he led a revolt against the liberal party on disestablishment and is he not now a chief in the house of pharaoh 
once it has been on the point of revolt but he had only to appear and it was soothed wales will get its reward quicker than if he had remained its parnell but it must wait the propitious season he is forgetive but he will not forget wales for wales is not birmingham and so i turned to the figure at the end of the table with a smile so quick and sunny yet so obscure if the key of the future is anywhere it is there if the social fabric is to be reorganized there is the man that can do it he stands in the furrow that mr chamberlain deserted mr chamberlain put his hand to the plough and turned back he failed because he lost the vision of his youth and treated politics as a game and not as a gospel mr lloyd george will succeed in proportion to his fidelity to the inspiration not of westminster with its intrigues but of wales with its simple faith i turned to my neighbour and i said yes i uh, wonder end of chapter fifteen